0: today hear about Santa and a little town. Welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot, as she called us to live to a higher standard each day. that We shouldn't be satisfied with just settling for a little religion in life, though well, that's a shallow substitute for what God wants for us. As the series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others who are influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. Today we get to hear from Valerie Elliott Shepard as she's a guest on Gateway to Joy 175, Santa Claus is the topic. Also, Gateway to Joy 176, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Maybe you've sung that many times yourself. We'll have that for you later. Coming up, a fun poem from Betty Scott. Elizabeth herself will be sharing that. And Kathy Gilbert will be our guest today as she talks about how Elizabeth prayed with her. Uh, First, though, hear about Santa as Valerie joins us on Gateway to Joy 175.
1: You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend Elizabeth Elliott talking today in the studio with my daughter Valerie. And Val, I wanted us particularly to talk about the subject of Santa Claus. What do you think about Santa Claus?
2: We have never told our children that there was a Santa Claus, simply because it's not true. But we do allow them to um, say to say that it's a pretend story, and uh, our main thing has been to teach them that the gifts come from mom and dad or from friends and relatives and that the pretend story is that the Santa Claus comes down the chimney and puts gifts in the stockings. They know that the gifts in the stockings are from mommy and daddy and we do it Christmas Eve. Um, We have Because my mother brought me up the same way, she didn't tell me that Santa Claus was real. We've really followed in that path, because we didn't want our children to be disappointed when they found out he wasn't real. Um, We really do try to emphasize that we are celebrating Jesus' birth. We read the Christmas story all through Advent as we prepare for, for the celebration of his birth. I
1: feel very strongly about this, Val, as you know. I feel so strongly about a lot of things, and there are three reasons why I think that it's a very bad thing to perpetuate the Santa Claus story with your children as though it were a true story and not a fairy story. Children need to know the difference between true stories and fairy stories, and I am certainly not against fairy stories. I'm strongly for them. C.S. Lewis's Narnia books and George MacDonald's Princess and Curdie books. But my mother told us the story of how when it wasn't until she was about seven years old that one of her little friends told her... That there wasn't any santa claus and she just cried and cried and cried she felt as though she had lost her best friend mm-hmm. and i've heard of stories of people who have put god in the same category with santa claus mm-hmm. the same parents who told them about the existence of god and that jesus loves me and all that were parents who also told them the santa claus story so when the santa claus story disintegrated mm-hmm. the god story also disintegrated mm-hmm so, first of all, the children get horribly disappointed. Secondly, it involves just plain, outright lying. You've got to keep on lying, and once you tell one lie, then you have to build up a whole fabric of lies. Mm -hmm. The kids are going to find out pretty soon that it's quite impossible for Santa Claus to come down the chimney. Well, if Santa Claus doesn't come down the chimney, who is it that fills the stockings? And then when the kids go out to the mall and they see three Santa Clauses mm-hmm. and one on every street corner, mm-hmm. surely the fabric of lies becomes extremely complicated. Yeah. We don't want to tell them lies. We don't want the children to be disappointed and feel that they've lost a great friend. And we do want to teach the value of fairy stories as opposed to true stories. We want to show them the distinction. So. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that you've clarified that as far as your own convictions as a family go. Now can you tell us what sort of Christmas plans
2: your family makes? We usually start in October talking about gift giving and I was thrilled to hear my daughter say, my one who loves to buy things and loves to spend her money, that I was thrilled to hear her say that she this year was going to make gifts for her family. And I really want to encourage that this year. First of all, there's not much good on the market that they can buy for one another. And secondly, it certainly shows more thoughtfulness and unselfishness when they have to work at something to give it to somebody else. One tradition that we started in our family that was not in my mother's family was that because so many people gave our children gifts being a pastor's family, There were some Christmases where we had just an overabundance of gifts and I felt it was just too much for the children, especially children under five, to be able to appreciate or accept all on Christmas morning to open up all these different gifts. So we decided that each child was allowed to choose one of the gifts from under the tree to open on Christmas Eve. And this would be after our Christmas Eve service at the church and after our family reading of the Christmas story. So they were allowed to open one gift. And that way, they could appreciate that one gift and the next morning not have quite so many to open all at once. Another tradition that we have is to have a good breakfast. And baked apples has been my last three years tradition for Christmas breakfast. And some kind of a bread, baked apples with the bread that I baked. Have that when everybody gets up, and after they have opened their stockings. Where do they open their stockings? My husband and I have usually come downstairs when the children were up. Um, I think a couple of times they probably opened them on our bed, but we always told them that we had to wait for both mom and dad to be awake before they could open their stockings. They couldn't open them on their own. They had to have us with them. And remember, we, excuse me, you remember that New Yorker cartoon of the little kids? They had opened everything. Two little kids in their pajamas
1: sneaking in, waking up the parents, and it's obviously pitch dark outside. Uh-huh. And they said, "We opened, opened
2: everything. Everything." <laughs> so we've only allowed them to open them, uh, even even the little stocking presents one at a time, so everybody could appreciate and see what was what each one was getting. But then after breakfast, everybody has to be dressed and the breakfast dishes have to be cleaned up and the beds have to be made before we can all go together to sit down in the living room. And then we choose one of the children of the family to be, quote, the Santa Claus, the person who hands out the presents. And then they everybody takes a turn opening a present and everybody has to watch each one. And my children have enjoyed that, uh, even though they say, do we have to wait for everybody else to open their presents? I can actually see that they enjoy the taking the turns and watching each one open presents. So it usually t- takes almost till ten thirty or 11 o'clock in the morning before all the presents are unopened. And we, we don't even have as many presents as some families I see have under their trees. Do
1: you have a special menu for Christmas dinner? Do you invite guests?
2: Yes, we almost always have guests. If we don't have our own family with us, we try to invite um, the single people or the young couples in our church that don't have family to have Christmas with. And we usually eat about two o'clock in the afternoon and we have turkey and sweet potatoes and the typical Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner that most Americans would have.
1: Now, you didn't tell us about when you put your tree up, and is there a special ceremony of trimming it?
2: Yes, we've usually put our tree up anywhere from two to three weeks before Christmas, and we have all gone out as a family to get one, and we've had to go to Christmas tree lots because we've never lived close enough to an empty country area for us to go and find our own Christmas tree to cut down. But we've chosen the Christmas tree and brought it home together, and as soon as Dad can get it up in the stand, then we have a special Christmas tree trimming party where we may um, sing some Christmas carols, and then we may have hot chocolate or roasted marshmallows or something like that. along. Do you have a fireplace? Yes, we have a fireplace, and we use it a lot even in Southern California.
1: As I recall, a lot of your Christmas ornaments were handmade by the children
2: Yes, even the first year that I was married, before I had children, I had made a lot of the ornaments. I still have those, and the children still like to make more ornaments, so we work on it every year, little, a few ornaments at a time.
1: Do you have a crèche?
2: Yes, a homemade one. My mother gave us uh, some figurines that are plastic, so they are they're really pretty. They look like they're wooden carved figurines, but they're not breakable, so I allow the children to... Put it up on the coffee table or to bring it down and and then put it up on the mantelpiece the The little stable is handmade by Walter and my mother.
1: <laughs> last Christmas you made that What do you think is the purpose of having a crash that's something that I never had when we were growing up. I think my parents sort of eschewed that sort of thing because it was traditional with a certain church that they didn't have a whole lot of sympathy with. Mm-hmm. And I feel that, that we lost something by not having a crash, and that's why I wanted to give one to the grandchildren.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What purpose do you think it would serve?
2: Just, I think, in helping the children to see that Jesus had such humble beginnings and that even the oxen and the donkey and the sheep were around the crib or around the crash and the manger, mm-hmm. and that the simple shepherds, and of course we joke about our name being the shepherds, we're... We're the ones that had special place in having the announcement brought to us first. And just letting the children see the actual scene, I think, is very important, especially since we want to concentrate on Jesus' birth rather than on gifts. Children do love a baby, don't they, even if
1: they don't admit it too much. And in some families, I don't remember whether you do this or not, Val, to keep, keep the baby Jesus, don't put the baby Jesus in the manger until Christmas Eve. Some families put up the creche for several weeks in advance, but the baby isn't there Mm -hmm. until Christmas Eve when the baby's born. Then the baby gets to be put in the creche. It's not exactly historically accurate Mm -hmm. because obviously the shepherds wouldn't be standing around waiting for the baby to be born. But Uh it adds a certain uh, anticipation and suspense to it. Mm -hmm. And I think all the suspense and anticipation that you can put into your Christmas traditions help the child... To understand the meaning of advent mm-hmm. this tremendous fact that god became flesh that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and here's this little crash in your living room which is a symbol of the fact that jesus christ came to live in our house
0: santa claus with valerie Elliott shepherd On a program about the triumph of John and Betty Stamm, Elizabeth shared a poem from Betty Scott. Uh, Let's uh, go ahead and uh,
1: consider that right now. Betty Scott's faith was rooted in the love of God. And she loved her family. She loved her brothers and sisters as well. And she loved fun. And she wrote a poem, which I think you children that are listening to me will enjoy. It's called A Jingle of Words. Don't you love the common words in usage all the time? Words that paint a masterpiece? Words that beat a rhyme? Words that sing a melody? Words that leap and run? Words that sway a multitude or stir the heart of one? Don't you love the lively words? Flicker, leap, and flash. Tumble, stumble, pitch, and toss. Dive, and dart, and dash. Scramble, pirouette, and prance. Hurdle, fling. Waddle, toddle, trot, and dance. Soar, and snatch, and swing. Don't you love the lengthy words, subterranean, artificial, propagate, Neapolitan, revelation, elevate, ambidextrous, undenominational, simultaneous? Don't you love the noisy words, clatter, pop, and bang, scrape and creak and snarl and snort, crash and clash and clang, crackle, cackle, yowl and yap, snicker, snare, and sneeze, screech and bellow, slash and howl, whistle, whine, and wheeze? Don't you love the colorful, amber, rose, and gold, Orchid, orange, and cerise, crimson, emerald, purple, plum, and lavender, peach, and prussian blue, turquoise, matrix, jade, and jet, hazel, honeydew. Yes, with just the common words in usage everywhere, you can capture incidents, beautiful and rare. In words, you have a weapon more mighty than a gun. You can sway the multitude or stir the heart of one.
0: That was a poem from Betty Scott. From a program about the triumph of John and Betty Stamm. Later on, we'll hear from Kathy Gilbert, one of Elizabeth's good friends, as she talks about how Elizabeth would pray with her. Well, prayer is something that goes uh, throughout the year, including here at Christmas time. And one of the best things about this season is the special music that we associate so much with December 25th.
1: Oh, songs like, "A Little Town of Bethlehem. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says, and underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliott, talking with you again today about Christmas. And I want to begin by reading the words of a very familiar Christmas carol, one of the most beautiful, written by Phillips Brooks, who was the rector of boston's famous trinity church a writer of books and poetry these are his words "O little town of bethlehem how still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And let me pause there as we sort of try to picture that little town of Bethlehem. We've all seen it on Christmas cards. And the modern town of Bethlehem does have some real similarity to those Christmas cards, at least it did about 20 years ago when I was there visiting. It's just a little town, and in the middle of the night, above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. But on one particular night in the history of the world, in those dark streets there shone the everlasting light, and the hopes and fears of all the years were met in him that night. The second stanza says, for Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above while mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. Almost everybody was asleep, we suppose, except the shepherds. They were the ones who were awake in the fields, watching their flocks. And so it was to them that the angels came. But while the rest of mortals were sleeping, the angels kept their watch of wondering love. Oh, morning stars together, proclaim the holy birth, and praises sing to God our King, and peace to men on earth. How silently How silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming. But in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him, still the dear Christ enters in. Think about those last four lines. No ear may hear his coming. But in this world of sin, this same world, just as sinful, maybe more sinful than it was back when Jesus was born, wherever meek souls will receive him, the dear Christ enters in. Meek is a word we don't use very much today, isn't it? It doesn't mean weak. It just means humble. Now, who in that little town of Bethlehem imagined the great star, recognized by the Eastern astrologers and followed, given to guide those mysterious kings from nowhere back into obscurity. In the dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Why not with trumpet blasts? Wouldn't you expect that the coming of the King of Kings would be with trumpet blasts? with royal proclamations and fanfare and maybe camel trains and pomp and ceremony and who knows what other kinds of ceremony, celebration. It was a strange method for God to choose. But God is in the business of doing things in ways we never imagine. He moves in what seems to us twilight, in the dimness we have to make our decisions. We'd like to have a star of Bethlehem to guide us, wouldn't we? Oh, how many times I've wished that God would give me something as unequivocal as a star of Bethlehem or handwriting on the wall or a pillar of fire to guide me. But God doesn't do it that way, does he? Most of the time, walking by faith means walking in a certain degree of dimness where we have to make our decisions and act and obey and it's only the next morning that we can look back and understand. We can run up a familiar staircase in the dark, can't we? We don't have to see it, but there are certain things about that familiar staircase that we know. I know where the landing is on our stairs. We have wooden stairs, but there's carpet on the landing, so it's very easy to know when you hit the landing. But that's the way the life of faith is. There are just certain things that we know, certain guidelines. We know, for example, that all things work together for good to them who love God. Now, the Bible says we know that. The Bible does not say God is going to show us how all things work together for good here and now. He's not going to show us that here and now. We have to take his word for it. But that's what it means to take his word. You just read the verse, and as my friend Catherine Morgan said, I don't have faith, I just know how to read. So if you know how to read, open your Bible, read Romans 8, 28 and 29. It says there, everything that happens fits into a pattern for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It is all we know, but it is enough he will prove it in his time how silently the wondrous gift is given are you drawn as i am to hidden things i've always been fascinated ever since i was a little girl with hidden things i loved playing hide the thimble when i was two or three or four years old i was always called the snooper in our family because I was always going into closets and drawers and places where it really was not my business to go. And I remember in our summer place in New Hampshire, which really didn't belong to us, it belonged to my grandparents, I went snooping through all the things in a certain closet and I found what I thought were some empty boxes, and in one of the supposedly empty boxes, I found a pair of glasses. Well, it turned out to be a pair that my grandfather had lost and he'd been looking for for years, and he gave me a quarter for finding those And so I triumphantly showed my quarter to my parents and said, look, I earned this by snooping. I always loved little sandy roads in the New Jersey pines. I didn't have a chance to follow them. We would be driving by on a highway, and I would always be fascinated to think, I wonder where that road goes. I always loved footpaths in the woods in New Hampshire where we spent our summers. And I loved the games that involved either hiding, like hide and seek, or kick the can, or hide the thimble. I was always drawn to weak things, babies, little animals, tiny crabs, lowly things. What about painful things, silent things? In the spiritual life, the instinct of faith hints that God is there in hidden things, weak, lowly, painful, silent. God's book, the Bible, is just loaded with instances of this fact. God is there, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, is silently and in hidden ways at work, in those very unlikely circumstances and events. So what difference does this make in our life during this week? Let's meet everything that comes as people who know, trusting and submitting to the authority of the eternal word, who does not reveal the end or the outcome or the meaning, but only himself. And this has been my prayer lately. I've been really having quite a struggle over certain things in my life and in the life of some people I love. And I've been saying, Lord, just make yourself real to me. And I've thought of that poem that I think maybe Hudson Taylor wrote, or at least Hudson Taylor was one who quoted it often. And Amy Carmichael also quotes it, Lord Jesus, make thyself to me a living, bright reality, more present to faith's vision keen than any outward object seen, more near, more intimately nigh than even the sweetest earthly tie. What is your condition today? Are the things you don't understand, you don't know the meaning of them, you have no idea what the outcome is going to be maybe you're really afraid come to him who came to us ask him to make himself known to you he is emmanuel which means god with us maybe there's someone and i'm not sure whether The Lord is just reminding me to say this to you, but I have a feeling that there may be somebody out there who is pregnant and doesn't want to be. Somebody who is dying a thousand deaths over the prospect of yet another child. You're afraid. You can't handle it. You know your husband doesn't make enough money for it. You don't have room in the house. You're already exhausted, tired, desperate. Remember that Mary also had an unexpected pregnancy. And her response was, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Let it happen as you say.
0: Gateway to Joy 176, a little town of Bethlehem. Well, before we go, uh, one of Elizabeth's friends, Kathy Gilbert, will be joining us. Wife, mother, grandmother. Let's hear about prayer and speaking Spanish
1: today. Lars was still at the book table, and so we sat together, and she was sharing prayer requests with me. And then, to my absolute delight, she had me get down to pray together. And boy, did we pray, earnestly, gloriously, fervently praying for just the different needs and desires and requests that she had. And another behind-the-scenes story, she'd love to speak Spanish, and she could speak it like a native. So wherever we'd go, whether it was a server or a helper or a housekeeper, she would begin to just speak to them in just this fluent Spanish to their delight and to hers. I loved that about her. And another thing I loved about Elizabeth and Lars is they both loved to dine with those they served with and even inviting them to their home. And I wasn't the only one that was able to come and stay with Elizabeth. Many others did the same. A good friend of Elizabeth, Kathy Gilbert.
0: Well, as our time is coming to an end, let me thank you for letting us come into your home, your office, maybe as you've gotten some exercise today, wherever we found you. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out all the resources at elizabethelliot.org. Gateway to Joy programs, and more, elizabethelliot.org. Be sure to leave a review the next time you get a chance. And as we wrap up another time together, remember that quote from Elizabeth. One does not surrender a life in an instant. That which is lifelong can only be surrendered in a lifetime. And until next time, may God remind you daily, You're loved with an everlasting love. And what's underneath? That's right. And underneath are the everlasting arms.